Hey, everybody, it's Carrie Champion, and this is The Brown Print, a podcast that offers solutions and guidance for the marginalized and those who feel left out. These discussions will act as a guide to mentor those in need of direction and also to inspire those who feel hopeless. We will move the needle forward and speak out on the issues by way of dialogue and telling stories of those who need to be heard. But let me tell you this, to try to, you know, point the finger and say, oh, man, I left because him, like, get the fuck out of here. Like, and I still love Kay, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, his his feelings about me may not be the same, but I'll ride for him for the rest of my life. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. you ain't leave because of me. Like, you fucking Kevin Durant. If you wanted to be here, I would have been out if I was the issue. Draymond Green is an incredible athlete. He plays the power forward position for the Golden State Warriors, and he's a three-time NBA champion as well. He is one of the league's most competitive players. You've seen him. You know I'm not making this up. I think the first time that I met him was 2016. It was the All-Star Game in Toronto. And I remember thinking, oh, he got an attitude. However, I was so wrong. And that is because he's misunderstood. He'll tell you. He talks about it in this podcast. Uh, He is arguably one of the most misunderstood players in the league, but he's also one of the most competitive. He's the type of guy that doesn't know how to turn it off. And that's because he's a champion. In fact, he's a three-time NBA champion. So I respect it and I understand it. I wanted to talk to Day-Day about his incredible career and all he's accomplished as a black athlete. His brown print is so inspiring and of course it's so different and he talks about it in a way in which you can really relate and understand i applaud his candor if you will because he keeps it all the way funky i wanted to get a sense of what a black athlete in the spotlight thinks about his responsibility what he has to do on and off the court and the type of man that he ultimately wants to be so sit back and relax and enjoy my conversation with Draymond green Now, before I knew Draymond, I would have been, I don't know, how would I have described him? Not in a way in which I know him now. So I think it's always one of those things where you can't judge a book by its cover. And now that I know this book, I've opened it up, I've read, I'm impressed by all that I know, but I want to let everybody else, you know, take a peek inside um, of Money Green's life, if you will. <laughs> so we all know that you play basketball. You are a NBA champion, and you are arguably one of the most known personalities on the court. But off the court, I don't think everyone really knows your story. So Day Day, tell everyone uh, where you grew up and and what was it like your childhood, your brothers, sisters. I grew up in Saginaw, Michigan. Um, I grew up with an older sister who is four years older than me, with two, a brother who's two years older than me, and then I was the baby, um, which may show a bit in my attitude at times, but, you know, I was my mom's baby. And, you know, growing up in Saginaw, it, it, it kind of breeds you a little differently. You know, it's a blue-collar town, kind of ran off car manufacturing, GM plants was kind of the big money maker in the city. Um, and, you know, growing up there, your definition of success or your thought of success is kind of like, yeah, I can get to the plant and, you know, I can work my way up. And when I work my way up, I can possibly make $30 an hour one day or $35, $40 an hour one day and working in the plant for 25, 30 years. And, you know, possibly bring in, you know, 90 to 100 grand a year. And, and that's kind of your definition of Saginaw rich, you know, and, and that's kind of all I knew. Um, and growing up in that environment, I uh, grew up, like I said, brother and sister, my mom and guy who I thought was my father um, were together until I was say 11 years old um and then it was just my mom I wasn't that I didn't have him in my life anymore father figures in my life anymore but in the home it was just my mom and you know and seeing that it that struggle that she went through it kind of it 
taught me to want more. You know, it made me want more, pushed me to go get more. And in doing that, you kind of build this, you, you kind of essentially grow this chip on your shoulder, you know, and with everybody telling you what you can do and telling you what you can't do uh, from coaches early on to teachers early on, um, rec center supervisors and workers early on telling you what you can't do. Uh, it just kind of naturally brought this chip in which speaks to your introduction and a lot of people not knowing the person. You know, everyone knows the personality on the floor or off, you know, or the, on TV or what they see in an interview. Um, but they don't really know the person, you know, and at times that bothers me because it's I think it's so far people's idea of me is so far from true. And so at times it bothers me, but, you know, at times I, I, I like to just keep it that way. Well, yeah, it works in your benefit if you want it to work in your benefit. But I, I, I got to go back because you said something that's so interesting. Um, would you describe your family as close, like you and your sisters and your brother? Were you guys close when you were a kid? Extremely close. And, and not only my sister and my brother, but, you know, my grand my grandfather who passed away my freshman year of college in 2008 at the age of 2008, 58, um, who was, you know, really kind of held our family together, was one of the most incredible men that you ever meet, uh, took care of everyone. My grandfather was the type of person where if you came over to my our family home, which was my grandparents' home, in February, and he met you on Christmas Day, there would be a present under the tree for you. Like, that's just the type of man that he was. And... And so I said all that to say my my grandfather, my mom is the oldest. She has two younger sisters and a younger brother. And our family is really, really close. That core group of my grand, my, you know, my grandmother and grandfather's children, uh, we're really close. And so it's almost as if I don't really have cousins, you know, or, or like like everybody's like a brother or sister, you know, because that's how tight knit that group of our family is. And, you know, we, we have family, other family in Saginaw that we were tight with as well, but that group of family, we, we've done everything together forever, you know? And, and so that was kind of my family dynamic growing up. Like it was very tight knit. That's what I know. That's what I appreciate. Um, that's what I'm always striving for because that's what I've known my entire life. Okay. So when did you start playing sports? When did sports enter your family dynamic in a way in which you knew that you had something special? So sports for me growing up in my family, that's, that's just what you do. You know, like in Saginaw, the Babers family and sports, like my aunt way back in the day, she graduated high school in 1989, she was the number one player in the country, you know, and, and, you know, people, it's funny because people always talk about, or, or you see like the Mikey Williams and, um, the other kid that just actually committed to Howard, I think his, uh, what is it? McCor, Shakur, M uh, maker, uh -huh. um, yeah. Maker, maker. Uh, so, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My aunt was the number one player in the country. She actually went to Howard. Like way back in 1989, she had Tennessee recruiting Pat, you know, Pat Summit, everybody recruiting her. She went to Howard. But that's kind of my family dynamic. Like the Babers family in Saginaw is like known for sports. Like we've all played sports growing up and, and that's just kind of the way of life. And so I naturally inherited that. And it wasn't just basketball. It was basketball. It was football. It was baseball. Uh, you know, my sister played volleyball. I mean, you name it, like, we've played it. And so that was just kind of a way of life, and you pick that up. Now, because of that, you, you, we watched sports really early. You know, and I remember watching MJ against the Jazz and, like, those finals games and, like, always telling my mom, like, Mom, I'm going to go to the NBA. Like, I'm going to play in the NBA. And, and also growing up in Saginaw, we're right next door to Flint. Around that time, you know, I'm nine, I'm 10 years old. 
Michigan State wins the national championship. So I tell my mom, mom, I'm going to Michigan State and I'm going to go to the NBA. I used to tell her that all the time, nonstop. And, and so it was just like a way of life for me growing up to say that I knew it was something special about me that I had that I would actually make it to the NBA. I can't say I ever knew that until I actually did make it. You know, in my senior year of college, I was still questioning if I would make it. But I did know I had an insane amount of love for the game of basketball very early on. So you saying I'm going to Michigan State and I'm going to be an NBA, you saying that as a kid, are you telling me you didn't believe that until when? Because I think you you speak things into existence. I watch people speaking things. I do that. We do that. Very people I know that are extremely successful. They visualize it before it becomes. So did you not believe what you were saying to your mother? Well, it wasn't necessarily that I didn't believe it at that age. But when you're saying at the age of six. Ma, I'm going to go to the NBA. You know, Ma, I'm going to play at Michigan State. It's like such a far-fetched dream. You don't have a clue of how you're going to get there. You know, so it's like this thing that you keep throwing out. Like, yeah, Ma, I'm going to go to the NBA. But the only thing I know about going to the NBA is that, well, I just got to play basketball. And that's so far, like, that's so far off from what you actually have to do to make it to the NBA. You know, you're talking about the training studying, you know, all the things that you actually have to go through in order to to make that come to fruition. And so as a young kid, it's not that I didn't believe it. It's just that I'm saying that and I don't know the first step to actually making that dream become a reality. And so I've always believed that I can do it. I mean, when there was times throughout the course of my life, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to quite make it to the NBA or not because you have so many doubters. And I think anytime you have doubters, there are just times where that creeps into your mind. But it's, it's, I always believed that I just didn't have a clue of how it would ever happen. Like how, where, like, how do I go about making this thing happen? I didn't know where to start. When you, when you leave high school and you get into Michigan State, I want to know... The because there's I think there's levels of who Draymond Green is. Like, for instance, you were saying Babers. Is that your your grandfather's last name? Yes, that is my family name. My grandfather, which obviously my grandmother and uh, my mom. That's our family name, Babers. Okay, and Green is your father's last name. Yes, Green is my father, who I thought my entire life growing up was my father's last name. And when did you find out he was not your father? Oh, uh, when I was 12. Okay. And did that impact what you wanted to do in terms of your career and your focus? Did that change anything? Did that help? Did that motivate? It, it didn't impact what I wanted to do or change anything as far as my career went. What it did was it impacted me as a young man because it was just a lot of confusion for me. And... Also, not only was it a lot of confusion for me, but it was also a lot of hmm, almost it was just almost an embarrassment for me because, you know, the the man who I thought was my father growing up as a kid, he, you know, he was very involved in our lives. He was the parent that I. You know, Jamie Foxx, the Astro van that, 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 that he got from, uh, what was it, Jingle? Jig, jingle? Yeah. Yeah. Like, we had an Astro van. I remember going to the dealership with him to buy the Astro van. And, like, that's how we used to get to games. Like, he was the father who would pick all the kids up in the neighborhood that didn't have a car and get them to games. He coached our Saturday co-ed league teams when we would have, like, we started our own little AAU team in Saginaw. And... Like, you know, we would have tournaments in Flint or in Grand Rapids, Michigan or Pontiac, Michigan. Like we're driving that van. And so he was that father. So everybody, all the kids, you know, in our neighborhood, in our school, they knew who my father was. And so then for me to find that out, like it was almost a question, like, how do I explain this to these other kids and like not be embarrassed by it? And so I say it didn't necessarily bring a, it didn't necessarily bring like, oh man, I don't really want to do this anymore. More so just, it just more so brought like 
like, how do I tell my, my classmates that? How do I tell my peers this? It was, a, and it was an embarrassing moment, or not an embarrassing moment, but it was just kind of an embarrassing situation for me because I didn't know how to explain it. As a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, I just didn't know how to explain Speaking it. Speaking of explaining, who explained it to you? My mom. Uh, my mom explained it to me. And, and my dad, uh, they, they both explained it to me. They sat me down and explained it to me. Like I said, at, at the age of 12, it's just like, what? Like, what are you talking about? You know, it's like. But, I, but I, what I'm asking is, what made them tell you at 12 years old? Like, why then that moment? I think once they divorced, once they were going through a divorce, I guess it was just time to tell me. Um, and to be honest with you, I'm, I'm still not sure to this day of why that time was right. You know, like why all of a sudden now is it time for me to know that? But, you know, it's something that I just had to come to grips with. And like, that's my reality. That's my story. And, you know, what I found in that being my story is like growing up as a kid, it was almost like, man, I'm just like this outlier, like, like that has this story. And the more people I've talked to about this story, I've talked to teammates about this story. And I've realized a lot of people actually have similar stories. And it, it was, it's, it's been a very interesting role for me to kind of speak to different people about my story. And they're like, yeah, man, I actually went through blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yo, that's that's so similar. Which I think, you know, growing up, you just think like your problem is the worst problem. You know, like your issues kind of outweigh anybody else's issues or no one else kind of has those issues. But the reality is the more I've spoke to people about it and like opened up about it because it took me a long time to be willing to open up about that. A lot of other people have that issue or have had that issue in their life or that situation, I should say. Do you think that that contributed to what you say is a chip on your shoulder? Um, I wouldn't necessarily, I, I wouldn't say so. Because at the end of the day, I think for me personally, my mom was fantastic. I come from a great family. And, you know, even when I found that out, it just wasn't like he just walked out of my life. You know, like he was still there as my father, doing everything as a father would, and, like, nothing ever changed at that point in my life. And so I wouldn't necessarily say that was, like, the thing that built, like, kind of brought this chip on my shoulder because I know that there are a lot of other children or now adults, guys, girls, that situation was even much worse than mine. And now, you know, that, you know, I've accepted that situation. I can kind of look at it with a clear head and understand that there are people in way worse situations right. than what I was in. And and so I wouldn't necessarily say like that created some chip on my shoulder. You know, like if anything, that divorce and watching my mom struggle the way she struggled and me wanting to be the person to change that. I could say that helped create the chip on my shoulder, but I wouldn't necessarily say my father's situation did that because I still had my, he was still in my life. My grandfather, like who was, like I yeah. said, was the most amazing man. My uncle, like great coach. Like I still had amazing male figures in my life. And so I, I can't act like that was just this thing that kind of tore me down and I had to build on. I was thinking that maybe when you were a kid, if you're embarrassed to tell people that that would be like a defense mechanism if it ever came up or you were tough in that way because you were trying to hide certain things. I know as a kid, when I was always trying to hide something that made me be more aggressive towards other others so they wouldn't, you know, try to get at me or get inside of what I was talking about or wanting to know about my feelings. I believe that the Draymond growing up in Saginaw wasn't necessarily the same Draymond when he graduated or when he left Michigan State. And I want to I want to I want to skip to when you got there um, and your freshman year and you are at this school that's legendary for basketball. You knew you'd go there, even though you said you didn't know, but you are there now. You're playing under this amazing coach. Um, when did you find your voice on and off the court? Uh well, before we moved to Michigan State, what I will say is that me playing basketball and like 
becoming who I was becoming in basketball helped me gain the confidence to face that situation. Because what it became for me was like, all right, like I'm comfortable. And like, I think when you, when you kind of grow the way some of us has grown in our life and in our careers, I think you're able to, like we grow into these careers and like you become more of some, somebody to the world. I think, I think that that can go either one or two ways for you. I think you can either grab a hold of that and kind of build up on that. And that makes you feel better about yourself. Or you kind of have this thing of where like everyone else in the world feels some way about you. And that kind of weighs on you because you don't necessarily feel that way about yourself. And I think we've seen both over the course of the years through superstars, through different guys, women like, you, you've seen both, whether you know you've seen both or not, we've all seen both. And I think for me, what it did was it gave me the confidence to say, no, I'm Draymond Green. And like, that's just my story. It is what it is. And like, if you don't like it, you don't like it. Like, but you don't have to live that story. You didn't have to live that life. So it really doesn't matter if you like it. So I think in playing sports and becoming who I was becoming at that time in my life, it gave me the confidence to just accept it and say, yeah, that's my story. Now, it's ironically, you're moving into Michigan State because I, what I will say is I didn't accept that. I didn't accept that until my sophomore year of college was when I finally gathered enough confidence in myself to say, yeah, that's, that's my story. And, hey, fellas, so this is the deal. Like, you know, y'all met Raymond as my father and blase blah, yeah, he is my dad, but the, here's the story. This is what happened. And now you're meeting my biological father and yep, they're both going to be a part of my life and that's just what it is. But I had to build up that confidence and, and playing basketball helped me build that, that confidence. And so, you know, coming into Michigan State as a young kid coming from Saginaw, Michigan, um, dream school, always wanted to go there. I committed to Kentucky my junior year because Michigan State was kind of recruiting me, but kind of not. Like, they were recruiting me and, like, keeping me at bay, but not necessarily all in or on bringing me to Michigan State. And so I committed to Kentucky. When I decommitted from Kentucky towards the end of my junior year season because Tubby Smith decided to leave, um, I decommitted and... The first person to call me at 7 a.m. the next morning was Coach Izzo. And he's kind of cussing me out, like, how dare you commit to Kentucky, blah. And I'm like, you never offered me. And he's cussing me out, like, you're fucking ridiculous. How the fuck could you say that? You know you had an offer. And I'm like, no, you didn't. It's like, well, fuck it. Here it is. You have a fucking offer. Is that what you want? Like, that's always been me and Coach Izzo relationship. Like, even as a, a 17-year-old recruit, that was, that's been our relationship. But, um... Coming into, like, coming into Michigan State, I was a chubby, 270-pound, undersized foreman. But, uh, you know, and so coming into there, when I came into Michigan State, I came in, I was a number one player in the state. But a guy was coming to Michigan State the same year as me that played my position, and he was a top five player in the country. And so everybody told me that I was stupid for going there because I would never play. Like, I'm going to have to sit behind this guy, and that's just that, and I need to go to some smaller school because I'm not big enough, I'm not fast enough, blah, blah, blah. The same thing I heard when I got to the NBA. Um, I just heard all of these things, and in my sick mind, I said, well, I'm going to go to Michigan State so I can prove all y'all wrong. Like, I'm going to go to Michigan State, I'm going to take his minutes, I'm going to show y'all I'm better than him because I know I'm better than him. And then I'm going to just tell everybody to shut up, drop the mic, and I'm going to walk off. That was, my, that was like one of the main reasons I went to Michigan State. So I can prove wrong, prove everybody wrong that said I would never play in front of the guy who was the top five recruit, which it worked out for me. But going into Michigan State, I was, you know, and growing up in Saginaw, it was a big culture shock for me. Like, I had never really been around white people growing up in Saginaw. Like, there was probably three white kids at my school, and they were 
like in self-contained classes where, you know, there's no windows. That's the only thing I really knew of white people. And so going to Michigan State. Wait, what did you know of white? Wait, what did you know of white people? Say that again. That like I had three, three white people in my class and like, I mean, three white people in my school and they were just like in self-contained classes. What does that mean? Self-contained. Like self-contained classes. It's like they stay in that. Like, you know, you go to high school, you like, I think I had seven co- courses throughout the course of the day in high school, six or seven. Yeah. They stay in one class all day. And there are no windows. Um, they're like jumping on the teacher's back. Like. It's almost like special education, but a, mm. but a notch up, like even more intense. And so that's really all I knew of like. White people. Like, I didn't know much else. I mean, you know, you had, like, I had a white, white teachers growing up, but you don't really get to know your teachers growing up. Like, they're there to teach the class, and that's that. And so I, I, like, arrived at Michigan State, like, as this non-diverse kid, um, chub, chubby, and, like, I'm just here to play basketball. I come in with, like, this attitude, like, yeah, I'm here. Like, all right, here y'all go. I'm here. What's up? And like, they kind of, they, they broke that attitude really fast. Like <laughs> on day one, I, I, they broke that attitude, but that was, that was me arriving at Michigan state. It's just like, I'm here. I'm here to show y'all that I'm better than what y'all think I am and that I'm better than all y'all. And I'm here. And what y'all got for me? Like, that's kind of the mindset that I enter Michigan state with. And I grew a lot. And and I always like to say, you know, I I came into Michigan State as a as a young boy thinking I knew way more than what I did. And I left as a man knowing that I didn't know much at all. That's really, really profound. But so you leave Michigan State and in my mind, I'm thinking you sound as if you are like a 180, much more evolved. So this kid who didn't know much about white people didn't know it had a different type of chip on his shoulder. You leave knowing you're, you've been exposed to a different world. You know, you're going to go to the draft. Um, and I believe you've shared with other people that you felt some type of way in the draft in terms of where you were chosen. And, and when you finally got to a team and what you had, you know, starting all over again to prove like, look, I'm the man, I'm the shit. Like once again, I have to show y'all I'm still the shit. So talk to me about draft night, getting getting drafted and your and your emotions. Uh, draft night was like a very bittersweet day for me. And the reason it was bittersweet, because, you know, like coming into college, as we just spoke on, I, there was kind of all these doubts and questions. And like you read the blogs and it's like, yeah, he, he's a mid major player and all of these things. And I actually over severely overachieved. And. I finished my career, my senior year as Big Ten Player of the Year. I won National Player of the Year at the Coaches Association. Like, I did everything that y'all said I couldn't do. And so now it's time to get drafted. And, like, you look on draft boards, and I'm, like, projected late first round at best. And it's just, like, everything y'all said I couldn't do or I wouldn't be, I've become. And here I am once again. Then draft day rolls around, and I swear I had a guarantee from, like, six teams. And, like, so much stuff happened over the course of draft day. Larry Bird stepped down, who was, like, one of the picks in between my range. He stepped down as the general manager of the Pacers. Um, the, the, um, Rick Sun, who was the general manager at the time of the Grizzlies, if I remember correctly, he stepped down. Something happened with, like, um, the general manager at Atlanta who was right there. Like, so many things happened. And I just, I slipped in the draft to the 35th pick. And I'm just sitting there like, here I am, national player of the year, and I'm I'm, I'm a second-round pick. And it's like, why? Like, and you look up, and what position? The number one question on me when I got when I was in the draft was what position would I guard? And you know, I often tweet, or not often, I just start back tweeting, or I'll say in my interviews, like, and I always talk about these basketball minds, you know, like these people who supposedly know basketball, 
and are making decisions, but they don't know shit. Like, you have a lot of people in decision-making positions in our league, and they don't know shit. Like, they don't know the game of basketball, and they've never played the game of basketball. And I'm not saying you have to play the game of basketball to know the game of basketball, but you have a lot of buddy-buddy shit going on in our league where you get general managers being general managers because they was friends with somebody, you know, or you get like a president of a team was like someone's drinking buddy. And, and, and there are positions that dis- essentially deciding guys like myself who dedicate their lives to the game of basketball to become a successful in that and doing everything you once dreamed of doing. And, and these people are making decisions, but they don't know shit. It's like the most backwards thing. It's like you're almost in control of someone's future and you don't have a fucking clue what's going on. And, and it bothers me because for your number one question to be, what position would I defend and come into the league? And I'm actually one guy who changed the league and by defending all five positions and one defensive player of the year, the best award, the highest award you can achieve as a defensive player in the NBA. How was that ever your fucking question? Like, you can't be that far off. Like, you know, you may say, oh, like, he can only guard one position, you know, or like, he struggles at this far. But you can't say, like, what position will he guard to, like, defensive player of the year? Like, you're just fucking stupid. Well, here's my question. When you, when you get mad at that or when you tweet about that or when you talk about that, I always believe that cream rises to the top they're not going to know anything. There's so many times that these minds of any sport have missed out. I mean, that happened. Look, your boy couldn't, Steph couldn't get a college scholarship to a decent school. So it happens often. And I'm, I'm just of the belief cream will rise to the top. The best will get to where they get. So you get, you get to golden state and you're feeling some type of way. How do you, how do you change the narrative? What did you do? What was the work that you put in to change the narrative? So when you go into these NBA teams, um, these organizations, you go into these organizations and they immediately want you to be who they want you to be. You know, and for me, I, A, didn't want to be who they wanted me to be, but B, I also had a coach in Mark Jackson who told me from the very beginning, listen, I want you to come here as the same Draymond I've been watching on TV for years. I want you to come here and be an animal, be a dog, and be a leader. I don't care who's in front of you. I don't care who has more money than you, who has more status in the league than you. I want you to come in and be the same leader that you've been your whole life. And so to hear that from, and I'm I'm forever thankful for Mark Jackson, because to hear that from your head coach as a second-round pick coming in, it almost is like a stamp of like approval of like, yo, like it's cool to be exactly who you are, you know? And I think a lot of guys don't necessarily get that coming into the league. I was very fortunate to have Mark Jackson tell me that from the very beginning. And so when I stepped off the plane, I was coming in like, fuck y'all. Like I'm here to get a spot. I'm here to make this, team win, help this team win because they were some fucking losers. They won 23 games the year before I got here. Like, I had never lost in my life. I didn't want to come here and lose, so I come in talking shit to everybody. I come in trying to get as many minutes as I possibly can because in my mind, I think winning is a mentality. Like, you know, everybody always talks about winning and losing, but winning, winning, being a winner and winning, it's a mentality. And so I feel like if you don't have a mentality, you would never win. And so I wanted to come in and try to help change the mentality of this organization that has been getting their fucking heads cracked for years on end, you know? And, and that was kind of my mindset. Now, am I saying that I came here and I am the person that changed this organization and made them win? No, but I think I definitely had a hand in that. And so in coming in, my mindset was just, I remember my assistant coach from high school, he told me, he said, Day, if he give you one minute, you have to make him give you two. 
If he give you two, you got to make him give you four. And if he give you four, goddammit, you got to make him give you eight. Coach Bruce, he, and I remember him telling me that. And I'm like, all right. Like, whatever, whenever, and, and, and I was tweeting about this a couple nights ago when the, or last night, uh, the Lakers and the Nuggets. And I was talking about Kuzma and Michael Porter Jr. And it's like, y'all two are mashed up. I'm watching Michael Porter not guard Kuz. I'm watching Kuz not guard Michael Porter. And it's like, what the fuck is that? Like, I'm trying to take your fucking head off because if I'm Michael Porter, I'm essentially a rookie. Y'all are saying Kuz is going to get this huge extension, right? Like, Kuz is going to get paid. Everybody's talking about where will Kuz end up? All of this shit. I'm trying to destroy you. So I'm guarding you. I'm trying to take your head off. I'm going to foul the shit out of you. You're not going to score. Like, that's, and so that's always been my mindset. And so, when I'm coming into this organization, David Lee's in front of me. David Lee was a great vet to me, by the way. I love D. Lee to this day. But when we're in practice, I'm trying to take David Lee head off because you're an all-star. I'm sorry, but you're in my way. Your spot. Like, in my way. I your need spot. that spot. And I'm never going to go about it in a way of like, you're my teammate. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to go about it in a way of we're in practice. I'm trying to hurt you. You know, or like I'm, I'm on the bench and I'm not cheering for you. You know, like, I would never go about it in that way because I, 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 I think it's very important. I take being a great person and being a great teammate very seriously. And so I would never do that. But to me, it just felt like he was in my way. What do I have to do on this floor to move you out my way? And that was just kind of always my mindset coming in here. But let's just, let's just think about that for a moment. That mindset that you have, what do I need to do You'll give me one, I'm going to take two. You give me two, you give me four. Four, give me eight. That mindset of like, you're in my way because I want to be the best and I want to compete. That is the mindset of a champion. I think that that you were um, and still are in so many ways, especially for Golden State on your run, you were their, their, their heart and soul. People would say that all the time. Yes, Steph, Clay, amazing. Best back, whatever. But your energy, that mentality was that goon, that mentality that they needed, right? So that they could actually get out there and compete. When you're in the locker room and you're, um, <laughs> and you're talking to Kevin Durant, per se, what are you saying to him? Are you, are you trying to put that mentality in, in, into everyone's mindset? Are you trying to have them come there with you? Well, I think in doing, when having that mentality or trying to help or not help, but trying to essentially give that mentality to your teammates, you can't. Like, I can't give Kevin Durant my mentality, just like Kevin Durant can't give me his skill set. Like, you, like, a mentality in this league is a skill. You know, like, just like Kevin Durant being the best scorer we've probably ever seen is all skill. You know, and like, there's some mentality that goes into being a great scorer because there's just a certain mindset that you have to have in scoring. Like you got to have a short term memory when you're a scorer like Kevin, when you're shooting like Clay and Steph, like your memory has to be really short because you can miss seven in a row. Like I've seen Steph Curry be over seven and like pull the next one from like 40 feet out. And it's just like, bro, why are you heat checking? You over seven, right? Like, but that's all, <laughs> that's all mentality though. And it's something that you, and, and saying that, you can't teach me to have Steph's mentality when it comes to scoring. Just like I can't teach them to have my mentality when it comes to everything else. So how do you go about that? I think as a leader, you go about that and it's almost like I'm going to, I'm going to have that mentality. I'm going to carry myself that way. And I'm going to demand certain things from guys that, comes from that mentality, right? So it's not that I'm going to try to give Steph my whole mentality. I just need to try to give you a couple things that helps us be on the same page when it comes to that mentality. I'll carry the bulk of it, right? You know what this, do you know what this is? No. The famous meme, the, 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 <laughs> that's what she was well, doing I was talking right to there. Kevin. I know you can't give it, you can't give it to him, but you can give him so you can give him something. And that's what you was doing. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. What you're saying, I, can, I see this for sure. And I can give him confidence in what I'm trying to tell him. Just like 
it gives me the utmost confidence when I'm wide open and Kevin say, yo, shoot. Like, Steph like, yo, you open, shoot the ball. That gives you confidence. It's no different than talking to a guy when you are something for a team and you talk to a guy about a certain thing a certain way. It's the same thing. But because there's not many people that embodies that mindset, it's very rarely understood. And so because it's very rarely understood, uh, Jimmy Butler has ran out of Minnesota and ran out of Philly because no one understands that mindset. When all the guys going to Minnesota and going to Philly saying is, I want to win and I need some guys with me that want to win as much or more, which it very rarely is there going to be a guy that wants to win more, but I need somebody that's going to roll with me. That's a great, great point. That is a great, great point. And he only has to be, which is why he's thriving in Miami, because he has to be with a certain mindset. Uh, the organization has that have that same mindset that he has. That that makes sense. And Miami has had that mindset forever. Pat Riley, that's... Pat, I mean, if you hear anything about Pat Riley, you hear about how crazy he is, right? Like, uh-huh. and if you hear anything about him, you hear about how, like, um, they still practice, like, like madmen and, like, Pat Riley don't accept nothing less. Like, very seldomly do you hear, like, yo, Eric Spolstra runs us into the ground. You literally hear Pat Riley is insane. Our practices are crazy. Yep. Like Miami is known for embodying that and wanting somebody that way. Pat Riley had been searching for some years to get somebody like Jimmy Butler with that mindset. And so now he goes there. And as I tweeted last night, he goes there and finds a, find a bunch of Indians that is willing to roll, right? They down to fight but they needed a chief. And so you insert the chief and all of a sudden these guys are one win away from the NBA finals. Are we allowed to say that? Is that politically correct? Indians in chief? I'm asking you. Um, I mean, I, I I, I don't, I don't want you to cut. I don't want you to cut up like Chuck. So I guess it's fine. (laughs) So using that analogy, because I, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down. I'm understanding that. I want you, and I think a lot of people know that about you. You've proven that. What is there, what is there, what one or two things are there about Draymond Green that people just do not know? What would they be surprised to find out? That also adds to the fact that you are a leader. I think there are a ton of things people don't know about me. I think one of the things people don't know about me is I'm probably one of the nicest people to ever meet. And... As long as you don't, like, do something out of the ordinary or, you know, pick with me to, like, push me some other direction, I'm, I'm a really nice person. And I take pride in being, like, a really nice, great person because I think in this world that we live in, there, there's not a lot of great people. Like, there's not a lot of nice people. And so I, take, I really take pride in being an amazing person. Um, and something else that people don't know about me, um, well, I think I'm very misunderstood. And I think the misunderstanding comes from exactly what we were just speaking of. You know, and this is a cool story. I've told this story several times now, but you will appreciate it more than anyone. Is I think it was 2016. It was 100% 2016. Um, I got I got suspended from from game five of the finals. And obviously we lost the finals that, that changed the whole series. And, you know, it was it was rough on me that whole playoffs, you know, like with the Steven Adams thing. And like I, I got a flagrant foul for like wrestling Mike Beasley to the ground. And right, and and really like they call it a flagrant foul. Like I aggressively tackle him to the ground when reality, like we need to get a foul. And I'm realizing that no one else is fouling. So I'm just grabbing him. So the referee will blow the whistle, right? I get a flagrant foul because of you have this reputation. In reality, they probably just wasn't as smart basketball wise as I was, but my reputation. And so I get the flagrant foul. And that happens. And then, 
you know, the Steven Adams things happen. This happens, and I'm flopping like everybody else, but I got this reputation that I'ma just kick kick a man where he shouldn't be touched. Like, like, but everybody I remember. Flop. Like everybody else flop and try to sell cars and it's no big deal, but I got this reputation. Whatever. Anyway, um, and so I'm going through it there. And where, you know, the media is dragging me. You know, like, I feel like everybody only builds you up to tear you down. You know, but until you're built up to be tore down, you really don't understand it. Like, it's one of those things where you hear it over and over again, but you don't understand it truly until you go through it. And so, you know, we won a championship, come back 2016, All-Star, all of these things. I got a new contract. I'm being built up to be tore down. And... Uh, as they're building me up to tear me down, sure enough, playoffs are going on. They are tearing me down. Every article you read, I'm this, I'm not, I'm dirty. And, like, I know I'm the furthest from dirty that you, uh, a player is going. Like, I'm not doing nothing dirty. Like, that's just not me. But that's the narrative. And I'm struggling real bad. And so who do I call on? I call on Kobe. And I call Cole, and I'm just like, Cole, like, I'm struggling. Like, I don't know, like, these people are trying to kill me. It's all, it almost feels like they're trying to end my career. And I've worked my ass off to get to this point. And it just almost feels like they're trying to end my career. And Cole told me, uh, he said, well, Dre, I'm going to tell you this. He said, you're chasing something so much bigger so much greater than the average person can understand that you will spend the rest of your career waiting on them to understand you. He said, because the reality is 99% of the world is okay with mediocrity. As long as they can be mediocre in something, they are just fine with that. He said 99% of the world is okay with that. So if 99% of the world is okay with mediocrity and you're chasing something so much greater than they are, they even think about chasing, how do you ever expect them to be able to understand you? They'll never understand you because you're chasing something so big that they can't even wrap their mind, they can't even begin to wrap their mind around what you're actually out there doing or what's going through your mind or what you're doing on a daily basis. They can't fathom that because it's so far beyond what they expect or want or will push for for themselves. So as long as you're going to sit here and worry about what they're saying about you or them understanding you, you you, you will look up your career will be over and you'll still be sitting there trying to figure out, do they understand you yet or not? He said, in reality is, Dre, I, I never gave a fuck if they understood me because I knew I was on to something so much bigger than they could ever understand. Why the hell would I sit and wait for them to try to understand me? And that right there kind of changed my whole outlook on just me. You know what I'm saying? And, and being comfortable with being exactly who I am and who I was at that time. I absolutely love that story. You already know why I love it, but I absolutely love that story. You love it because, you know. <laughs> no, I love it because, Kobe. yes, Kobe. yes, of course, because of Kobe. But listen, do you know how I relate to that? I, I can constantly misunderstood, but you can't worry about them trying to figure out who you are or what you are. It's only for you and yours to know. Because you're on to something else. Like, I relate to that. You can feel that. You know when you're special, when you're set apart. Kobe knew that. You knew that. I know that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the point of this podcast. It's the brown print. We're doing it differently. Everybody can't do it like us. By the way, I was, ex- I was super excited to come on this podcast. You know, it's the brown print. I felt like I could come on here and it's like some super brown people shit. And I love that. I love that that's what you stand for. I think... You know, and, and discussing this, it's like, like you, I think you and you and Jamel will forever be connected. And that's just because like y'all are two brown women on some brown people shit and embodying that. <laughs> and like, 
yeah, I'm not working with y'all no more. This is what I want to do. And we're going to go do it on ourselves because we like that too. And y'all say we can't, we doing that. And, and so I was extremely excited to come on here and like talk my shit because I felt like I can come on here and talk like some straight brown people shit. And, and it's cool. All, it's a fact. All of it is. Everything you're saying is different. Everything we do is different because the blueprint isn't for us. It will it'll never be for us. And for us to succeed is a way in which only we can. It's it's supposed to be different. It's only for people who've been marginalized and not thought about and forgotten. And we out here winning. Draymond Green, thank you so much for being on the Brown Print. Um, I will harass you later. Um, I think everyone on the podcast probably likes you more, has much more respect for you. <laughs> Bye, my friend. Thank you for having me. So I said at the beginning of the podcast, I really didn't like him when I met him. Clearly, I'm a fan. Draymond Green is a really nice human being. That's most important. That's what he said you guys wouldn't know about him. I just enjoyed that conversation, didn't you? I love that Kobe Bryant story. Uh, but it also leads me to what I like to do at the end of each podcast, and that is give you takeaways. So here are some of my takeaways from that Draymond Green conversation. First, stop trying to be understood. That's key. He spent most of his career trying to make people understand the type of player he is and will be. Kobe said, stop it. They couldn't understand if their life depended on it. Ignore the haters. Block out the noise. Stop trying to be understood. Now that is a gem. Number two, being a leader is actually a skill set that you cannot teach. When I asked him if he tried to pass that along to his teammates in the locker room, he said, you can't teach that. Just like he doesn't have the skill set that Kevin Durant has, he can't teach anybody else to be a leader. You just have it or you don't. And number three, like-minded people can help you thrive. In his locker room, he needed to be around people who were like-minded, who wanted to win. Not only did they want to survive, but they wanted to thrive. And that is a key in life. Find people who are like-minded. They will help you thrive. That's it for this week's episode of The Brown Print. Let's keep the conversation going online. You know I love to go online. Follow us on Instagram at The Brown Print Podcast and on Twitter at Brown Print Pod. Follow me, Carrie Champion, on IG and Twitter. You can find me at Carrie Champion. Don't at me if you got attitude. Well, okay. We'd love to hear your feedback. Or if there's a specific topic you want us to tackle or guests that you want us to have on, please reach out to the brownprintpod at gmail.com. Again, at brownprintpod at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. It helps spread the word. It is so important that we stay active and vocal. We'd greatly appreciate it if you showed us some love by leaving a five-star rating and a positive review. If you do not, I know you are a hater. Haha, <laughs> kidding, kind of. Not really. Meanwhile, uh, again, five-star rating and positive review. We need it. It really helps the podcast grow. The Brown Print is a Gallery Media Group original production.